Well, we've come to a subject that's going to be tough for folks to nod off this morning, right, by the topic and the nature of the text. So, parents, I know we've got some children in the room, so obviously from the text that we're sharing on this morning, it's probably PG-13 and up by the nature of the topic. I'll give you the outline, and then parents, you can decide. You can take your kiddos downstairs, plenty of rooms for them to be involved with, or you make your decision. How's that? Um, so, we're going to talk about, here's a kind of the framework for this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about the integrity of sex, the challenge of lust, and the hope for renovation. The integrity of sex, the challenge of lust, and the hope for renovation. And we're in the midst of this series where we're looking at the different topics, a wide-ranging sermon by Jesus. The Historians say perhaps the greatest sermon the world has ever heard. And in the midst of that sermon, he addresses something about the human condition that he knew all the way back in 33 AD. Could you imagine how he might expand this paragraph a bit in 2021, thinking about what he knew about the human condition and the heart and the need for redemption and a vision for sexuality that's so tied to our humanity. So he starts, right, in this section of verses, he starts in verse 27 with this repeated refrain we've referenced in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Here he's quoting a top 10, right, from Deuteronomy 19. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's one of the top 10. Check, that would be a good thing to uphold. And so he launches in on a portion of the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. He says, I'm going to give you a quotation from the Torah. And in that, he starts giving us this vision of the integrity of sex as the Bible outlines it. So what do I mean by the integrity of sex? I put it in your notes this way. If you didn't get a note sheet on the way in, those of you online, your online host can direct you that way. It'd be helpful for you to have some notes. Feel free to get up and snag that piece of paper if you didn't get it there on the back tables or pick it up on your way out. I defined it this way. The integrity of sex is there must be an integrity between body and life. You must not do with your body what you're not willing to do with your whole life. That's what he's getting at from this quotation from Deuteronomy 19. The sex ethic of the Bible begins with covenant. No covenant, no sex. That's the main premise. And by covenant, what do you mean? This, a covenant is an enduring, binding relationship, a promise, a commitment that is personal. And in our culture today, we don't, we don't operate much with a covenant style. That's not language. That's a little bit more older language than we have today. We're much more of, of the consumer relationship. We're well-skilled in consumer. That's the air that we breathe, right? A consumer relationship is a vendor provides goods and services for a price. And so you develop a consumer relationship where you're looking to pay for some products or a service, and if you're not satisfied with the price or the product, you just move on because your preferences and your desires are more important than the relationship with the vendor. It's just about getting the best price. You're always looking for an upgrade. You're always looking for a better deal, a consumer relationship as opposed to a covenant relationship. The contrast to consumer 
would be covenant. A covenant relationship says, I will adjust to you because I've made a promise. That's the covenant. The relationship is more important than my needs. That's a covenant. This is what, right, most classically is called marriage. The covenant relationship between a man and a woman begins the sexual ethic of the Bible. And it's based on this enduring promise to one another that they're going to share their whole lives together, and embodied in that is the expression of sexual intimacy. This is what it means for covenant. And it's, it allows, once you form this place of covenant in a relationship, do you see the contrast to consumer? Like in a covenant relationship, you form a zone of safety. You can stop posing and pretending when you enter into this. You can be fully yourself. Because in a consumer relationship, you're always having to kind of perform and pose and pretend and put your best foot forward. You're always having to sell yourself in a consumer relationship. In a consumer relationship, if you're in one of those, it's like where one or both parties are saying, hey, I'm out of here if I'm just not feeling it anymore, right? If I'm just not feeling anymore, this relationship over, I'm done. And it's like you're a puppet on a string, like tethered to your feelings. Because where do your feelings come from? Like your feelings come from what? Your physiology, they come from your past, they come from your body chemistry. I mean, from your past, he might say, well, she reminds me of my mother. What is that? I mean, your, your past can bring up feelings, your physiology can bring up feelings, your body chemistry can bring up feelings. And if you don't want to be a slave to your feelings, hear this now, make a promise. Make a promise. Form a covenant to break out of this constant tethered to feelings, like a puppet on a string. If I'm not feeling it, I'm out of here. That's a consumer-based approach. It's in a covenant where you say, you know what? You don't adjust to me. I adjust to you. That's a covenant. That there's something more important than my feelings, and it's the relationship. That's covenant. And you say, well, Eric, what does all this have to do with what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 here? It has everything to do with it. Because at its core, sex is not a consumer good. It's a covenant good. It's covenant at its core. And once you begin to grasp how sexual intimacy is framed around covenant, you begin to see it like a sacrament, an external visible sign of an internal reality, the binding, enduring relationship that exists. So sex is supposed to be something that you've done with your whole life. In sex, in the covenant of marriage, you're saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you. I'm going to share wholly with you, including my physical body with you. This is the covenant definition of it. And this is how the covenant then is strengthened through the physical intimacy act. This is the sex ethic of the Bible. And do you see now why the Bible says sex outside of marriage just lacks any integrity? There's no integrity when there's no covenant. You are saying, so here's what consumer approach to sex, a sex outside of the bounds of marriage. Here's what it's saying. It's like, I'm going to do like partial sharing of my life with you. I'm going to share something with you physically that I'm not willing to share with you my whole life. 
It's like a selective vulnerability. It's a consumer-based approach, and it lacks the integrity and vision that God has for our sexuality. So here's how C.S. Lewis, I put this quote in your notes. I thought Lewis said it better than I could ever say it. Here's what he says, the monstrosity of sex outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, sexual, from all other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. Now listen, I can tell from the nonverbal and feel in the room, I can tell how countercultural and just like it's so hard to listen and internalize this reality. But this is the sexual ethic of the Bible. And as a congregation, we're going to be faithful to preach and teach and uphold God's vision for our sexuality, because God's vision for our humanity involves our sexuality. And we're going to have to have an increasing amount of conversations with this topic, especially in the day and age that we live. And so I know it's tough to listen to that. I know this is a hard topic. Jesus knows this is a hard topic. And this is just point one. Right? So stay with me here. Those of you online, don't start making lunch yet. Stay with me here. Okay? Because we've got this vision. The beginning point is the integrity of sex, which the integrity is this. You ought not do with your body what you're not prepared to do with your whole life. There must be an integration between body and whole life. And where it is to be expressed and experienced is in the context of covenant, to turn away from the cultural vision of consumer that your needs and preferences are the top of stack and you form a relationship that adds core as an enduring promise to it that we call marriage. And in the context of that covenant, the physical act of sexual intimacy is to be expressed and experienced together. So he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Check. That's a really good thing right? All right, check that one off, Jesus. I feel good about that one. But here's what Jesus, but I tell you, so Jesus says in verse 28, but I tell you what? Tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you're like, really, Jesus? Like, maybe in 33 AD, but in 2021? Yeah. Like this vision, right? So here he gets into the, the challenge of lust. Now, I want to be real clear in this section of what he's not talking about and what he is talking about here, because I think it's a lot of misunderstanding in this section. So, Jesus, when he said, he quotes, you have heard that it was said, righteousness of the law, Old Testament, uh, quotation from the Torah, Deuteronomy 19, and then he's pushing towards something deeper, a righteousness of the heart, because he's saying, hey, you can check the box, not committing adultery, but still have all kinds of stuff mixed up in here. The challenge of lust. That's what he's going after. Something more deeply rooted. So here's what Jesus is not talking. Number one, Jesus is not talking about the appreciation of beauty. Have you noticed there are a lot of beautiful people in this world? A lot of beautiful people in this world. And God is the author of all of that beauty. Psalm 139 says, He's made us fearfully and wonderfully in His image and by His hands. There's a lot of beautiful people in this world. And when you see a beautiful person, 
to respond in admiration and appreciation of that beauty is not sin. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. It's not about the appreciation of beauty. Nor, number two, Jesus is not talking about the momentary flash of sexual desire that occurs when you see another person who is a beautiful. It's not that. Did you know that there's something in your physiology, like physiologically in your like neurochemistry of your brain, something is triggered inside of you when you see a beautiful person. A person of the, when a man sees a beautiful woman, there's something triggered inside of a man's neuro, neuroscience stuff, physically triggered. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. So it's not the first appreciation of beauty, and it's not this momentary flash of sexual desire, because our sexuality is a part of our humanity. And our physiology is wired to respond with desire. That's part of being made in God's image. He's the author of this beautiful gift called sexuality. God created it. And in a redemptive capacity, He's trying to pull us out of what's been such a corruption of it. I love what Martin Luther said. I put this quote in your notes here. I thought we might need this paragraph about now. So listen to it. It said, we should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teaching too taut here. As if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. Listen to this. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or from biting off my nose. Thank you, Martin Luther. I thought we needed a little like 16th century humor to kind of lighten the air this morning a little bit, right? Do you see what Luther's getting at? Don't take this too tight. It's not about appreciating beauty. It's not about that momentary kind of physiological response. When a man sees a beautiful woman, when a woman sees an attractive man, there's something inside of you that that's what he's… Now, that's like birds over his head, but you can do something about don't let it like, you know, settle and make a nest in your hair and bite off your nose. That's the… So this is the third step. Jesus is addressing this. He's talking about when a man gazes at a woman to get sexual gratification from her body. This is what the NIV translates, look at a woman lustfully. I put in your notes what the ESV, look at the ESV, it says anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Or Dale Bruner, New Testament scholar, translates this, every man who is looking at a woman in order to lust after her. Or Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he translates this, anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her. Or Dallas Willard says, anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, hear this, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. So you follow that? So here's what Jesus is addressing. He's not addressing the appreciation of beauty. He's not addressing that kind of first response, first glance of this, what, this desire that's triggered inside of you. He's addressing this, this onward, the second, third, and fourth, this gazing and fantasizing and rehearsing that gets settled down in your heart. That's what Jesus is going after. He's saying, hey, you can check off the box. I didn't commit adultery. But Jesus said, yeah, you cannot commit adultery. That's a good thing. Don't do that. But how about this? Your heart can be completely captive to this, the claws of lust. 
You can be spending your whole, it can take over your whole life and affect all your relationships to this point where you can, Jesus knows in the heart of a man there's going to be in his fallenness this propensity to objectify women, and that's what he's going after. It's the objectification of a woman's beauty and her presence to satisfy something inside of you. That's what he's calling out and wanting to root out of our hearts. You get that picture? So that's why he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, I'm going for something deeper, and he's going after objectification. And in that, there's this, and that's what the translators called lusting after in your heart, a lustful intent. That's this gazing upon a woman to get some kind of sexual gratification from her visual beauty. That's what he's putting his finger on and what the New Testament translates, adultery in the heart. It's not just enough to check the box, no physical adultery. That's what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees were all about. Just like, just go the external, hey, good, got that one done, don't murder, don't do that, good, don't commit adultery, good, don't lie, check off the top 10. Jesus like, that's a good thing, but I'm going to press deeper here, and specifically he's pressing on this issue of lusting, which when you get a vision of this, do you see how it's the exact opposite of God's vision of love in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 13, almost all the weddings that are put together, somewhere they try to integrate some reading of this vision of agape, that's the New Testament term for love, agape, love of God. Phrases like love is patient, love does not envy, love is not self-seeking. Do you see how lust is like undermining the whole vision of God's love for humanity. Like, love is patient, lust wants it right now. (laughs) Love does not envy, lust is always looking for an upgrade. You see that? Love, it's not self-seeking, lust is always self-centered. So do you see, like, lust is this cheap imitation that our world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to sell us that sabotages and undermines God's vision for the greatest virtue for which we're created, love, agape. Remember when they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What did he start with? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the highest virtue. Doesn't it make sense that the enemy and our flesh and the world's values would try to sabotage and undermine that vision for love? And it's primarily done with this picture Jesus addressing, lust. Lust is a cheap imitation. It may look good, sound good, feel good, but if it's not agape love, it's going to lead you to a place you don't want to be. And so out of Jesus' great love for us as His people, He invites us into a vision for our sexuality that's embodied in His vision for our humanity that says, hey, here's your first vision. You ought not do with your body what you're not prepared to do with your whole life. There's got to be an integration between your whole body and your whole life. And the context has to be covenant. Without an enduring promise, without a basis of a commitment to a relationship called marriage. No covenant, no sex. In the context of that, he says, you're going to battle this. Lust is going to come and try to convince you the consumer approach is the way to go. And I don't think we need a ton of commentary about where that tends to land us 
in our human condition. And culturally speaking today, right, every single day, the scrolling of the headlines go. When you're just in bondage to lust, every single relationship in your life is impacted. Think about today, from the Tinder app to Fifty Shades of Grey to every single clickbait that shows up in your social media feed. I mean, it's just, it's all over. And since 2007, when they invented the smartphone, it's in your pocket. One click away, one moment. It's just, it's just an inundation of this trying to sell us a bill of good called lust and get us to exchange a covenant for consumer. It's trying to do that. It's undermining. It's chipping away. And that vision Jesus is trying to counter. He's like, hey, we got to deal with that in your heart because it's going to land you in a place you don't want to be. I was reminded several years ago of this, this man who, he said, hey, we need to talk. I got a bunch of relational mess going on in my life. And that's kind of like every Tuesday for a pastor. So I mean, like, yeah, I said, okay. So we scheduled a meeting and he came in and he started the meeting by laying five cell phones on my desk. And then he said, Sarah, Renee, Rachel. What do you think I'm going to say at that point? I said to him, I said, how's that working for you? And he said, it's so hard. It's such a mess. And when we unraveled the story, we could unravel it back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, and we began to trace in this man's life at an early age how the claws of lust began to encircle his heart and get a grip on his life to the point where he's sitting in a pastor's office, a fairly young age, going, my life is completely out of control. I own five cell phones with five different females' names. You can't make that stuff up. True story. That's where this will drag you. And the religion of Jesus Day says, we got a solution. Just cut off your hand. Deal with the body parts. Gouge out your eye. Do you see? Jesus is quoting that to say, that's how much is at stake. Like, you got to do whatever you got to do to get this out of your life. The scribes and the Pharisees were taking it more literally that way and kind of the absurdity of righteousness of the law. Just check off the boxes and that's how you're going to make your way through this. And Jesus like, that's not going to work. That's not going to get in here. So listen how Dallas Willard puts it. I put this quote in your notes because he was trying to talk about the absurdity of the scribes and Pharisees approach. He says, you are right if you have done nothing wrong. That's the vision of kind of the religious paradigm of Jesus' day and still a fair amount in our day. You are right if you have done nothing wrong. You could avoid sinning if you simply eliminated the bodily parts that make sinful actions possible. Then you would roll into heaven a mutilated stump. But then Jesus, Willard goes on to say, Jesus has a different vision for a righteousness of the heart. Listen to what he says. The mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. The deeper question always concerns, hear this, who you are, not what you did do or can do. What would you do if you could? Eliminating body parts will not change that. Are you tracking with me, church? 
If you're with me, say amen. Okay, let's take a little bit of a breath here and kind of recap, right, where, we, where we're at here. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And everybody's like, amen, got that one down. But I tell you, I'm going after the heart. I'm going after a place on the inside of your life that if you don't get this harnessed under my lordship and my supremacy and the kingdom of God doesn't invade that place of your life, it is eventually going to contaminate every relationship around you. It will drag you to a place you never imagined being. It's called lust. It's called this objectification of a woman's beautiful, physical, visible presence. And you objectify to try to satisfy something inside of you. If you don't get that reined in under my power, it's going to be a real problem with your life. It's going to take you to a place way beyond the checkbox of committing adultery. That's what Jesus is going after here. So we've got the integrity of sex, the challenge of lust which the religion of that day would be just eliminate body parts, and Jesus says, no, I'm actually going to go inside. I'm going to, if, because he knows if he can get to the heart, then the outside behavior is a part of the package. He doesn't have to worry about don't commit adultery if he has transformation of the heart. If he can get to that, he knows he can handle the rest, which then the third element then we'll look at today is the hope for renovation. All through the Sermon on the Mount, church, this is a vit. Jesus presents a vision for a kind of life that is available to anyone at any time from any background. That's a vision Jesus pre- It's available to anyone. Remember the crowd he was with? It wasn't the like most popular religious crowd he was hanging out with. It was the fishermen and the tax collector, the day laborers, those who were caught up in physical illnesses and chronic pain and the demon-possessed. I mean, it was the group there. He's like, I'm inviting you into this kind of a life. And here he presents in these verses a vision for a kind of life that is free from lust. Can we even just pause there for a moment? Just a vision for the kind of life where Jesus says you could actually live as a person in this world, not bound by lust. It's possible. It's available. You don't have to stay in bondage to objectification of another human. You don't have to. There is another way to go about this. You can be free from adultery in the heart. And you say, well, how? How does that work? Let me say how it doesn't work. You don't do that by just focusing on saying, well, I'm going to just stop lusting. Have you noticed how this doesn't really work? Like the moment you're confronted with this lust, if this is a big issue and you focus on it, I'm just going to stop lusting. It's called Hebb's Law, H-E-B-B-S, H-E-B-B-S, Hebb's Law. Here's what it says. Hebb's Law says, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more you focus on not lusting, the more lusting becomes a predominant part in your brain chemistry. You don't focus on the issue that you're trying to break free from. It's rightly placed yeses that give you power over what you want to say no to. This is enter Jesus' school of living. The answer to how, how do we do this? It's all through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I'm inviting you into a kind of life the New Testament would call discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus. I'm inviting you into a way of living where you sit underneath my leadership and you come with open hearts and open hands and you say, Jesus, teach me how to live. Because everybody's learned how to live from somebody. You've got to decide who's going to teach you how to live. Who is going to be that? 
who's going to be the ultimate voice of authority in your life. Jesus is offering you an invitation unlike any other teacher or leader that I've experienced. I'm in Jesus' school of living because no one said the things Jesus said. No one's done the things Jesus done. No one gives me a vision for my humanity the way Jesus gives me a vision for my humanity, including my sexuality. No one. So I'm in His school of living, to which the Bible calls a disciple, an apprentice, And I will join him by submitting myself to renewing of my mind through his word. Like in your notes, I put a little picture of a diagram. You can go ahead and put that up here on the screen. It's like a triangle diagram for what it means to enter Jesus' school of living and be a disciple. You're going to submit yourself to his teaching and his words. There's got to be mind renewal because we're immersed 24-7, 365 with another vision for our sexuality and humanity. And it's not always aligned with Jesus. And I'm going to choose Jesus over our culture or over some professor with however many PhDs by their name. I choose Jesus. And I think He's got the vision and the plan. I'm going to submit myself to Him. So we've got to be in a regular part, right? We're allowing God's Word to shape how we see ourselves and how He sees our body and how we relate to each other, that Jesus holds the authority in that. And then we're involved in regular like focal practices. We're going to participate in a way of living that Jesus taught and modeled. We'll start, we don't live Jesus' life. We live our life as if Jesus were being lived through us in this day and age. And we do that together in community. You can't do this alone. And at the core of it, you go, you come up against a situation like lust of the heart, and you go, there's no possible way this gets, I can't root this out of my life. It's got to be the power of the Holy Spirit who comes and beyond, from beyond us, inside of us, and renovates and restores and renews and heals. It's got to be life beyond us coming inside of us. That's the whole vision of the Sermon on the Mount, that there's no possible way we could live this sermon unless God takes over our life. <laughs> Unless the Holy Spirit comes in and fills and guides and renews and heals and restores, yes. So it's teaching, it's focal practices, it's community, it's the power of the Holy Spirit going through really hard stretches of life over time. The cumulative effect of that is Jesus says, do you want to come? Do you want to come and participate in a kind of life where this issue of lusting of the heart no longer has free reign and rule in your life. I'm offering you a way of living where there's an integrity in your sexuality and where there's a way forward through the challenge of lust. You don't have to just cave and succumb to the messages and the air and the environment of our culture. It doesn't have to be this way. There is hope for renovation and for renewal. Because Jesus says, you know, all through this sermon, what is doesn't have to stay as is. And listen, church, I know, I know this morning this topic, this topic raises so, so many layers, so much response to this topic, right? Some of you this morning are hearing this message and you come from a space of deep sexual trauma in your life. You have been on the receiving end of some decisions by others that have objectified and taken advantage of and hurt you so deeply. 
And perhaps this morning, you hear the Spirit coming for your heart again in this space of healing grace and can coming for you. And we want you to, if that's where you're at this morning, we want you to know this is a place you can get help. We want to be a place you can get help, that there is hope for healing for you. You don't have to walk that road alone. I know it's incredibly sensitive, and I know you need to know a safe place. I'm telling you, this is a safe place with safe people to help you through no matter how many layers of sexual trauma have occurred in your life. And so maybe this morning your action item out of all this discussion is simply to reach out and say, I need help. I need some healing. I need some hope. And so it's, I'm going to give you an email, prayer at eaglechurch.com. You just send a personal note, prayer at eaglechurch.com. I promise you the circle that sees that is very small, including me, and we will make sure the right people follow up with you in the right way and get you the help and the hope for things to be different, that there is healing. I want to for anyone hearing this who just feel maybe you've never vocalized that in your life, you've, you've experienced some sexual trauma and no one else knows, that can end today. That the pathway to healing may be simply extending and saying, I need some help. I want to become known in this space and I want to go to Jesus for healing. We want to be that kind of a place. Because what is today doesn't have to stay as is. Now, there are others listening, and you know you've operated perhaps most of your life with a consumer-based approach to your sexuality. It's been all about your needs and wants. It's been consumer. It's been doing a bunch of stuff with your body that didn't have anything to do with commitments in a relationship, and it's landed you to a place where internally there is an emptiness and a lining in your soul that you know you need some help. You know, you can decide today that you're done with consumer-based sexuality. You can decide that today. And maybe that's where the Spirit's tapping on somebody. You know you've been handling your body that's been way out of bounds for way too long. You can decide today and that this is a safe place. You could send an email and say, hey, I want to connect with someone. I want some accountability. I want to have some conversations. I want some prayer. Maybe I need to get to a counselor. We want to be that kind of, this is the spiritual family. It's a family of Jesus. If we can't help each other in this space, come on now. We've got to be able to help and band together. We've got to have open conversations. We've got to drag things out of the hiddenness and get it into an environment, a safe space of openness before him. So maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe it's you know, you know that lust has its claws in your heart so deeply. You may not be five cell phone based, but you know if it keeps running, run the tape out, where's this going to go? You know it's out of bounds. You know it's been out of bounds for way too long. And you know some things need to change with the issue of objectification and lusting, whether it's a specific issue of pornography, whether it's some other outlet, you know. And today could be your day where you say, you know what? I want to, don't push, don't push a tug and whisper of the Holy Spirit away. Here's how much Jesus says is at stake on this issue. He says, your whole body could get thrown into hell. That's raising like the stakes high, but I want to raise it beyond just hell for eternity. 
Some of you are in a living hell right now in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships because you have not taken this issue as deeply and seriously as Jesus is painting it today. And you know who you are and you know where you're at. And today can be the day where you say, I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm not going to let it start trashing every other relationship in my life. Today, I'm going to put a stake in the ground, and I'm going to reach out, and I'm going to become known, and I'm going to get some help, and I'm going to get some accountability, and I'm no longer going to stay bound to this cultural vision of consumer sexuality. And I'm no longer going to live as a victim to some kind of lust that I feel like, oh, this is just kind of what we do today. No, it doesn't have to be that way in Jesus' name. And there is hope for renewal and renovation, and restoration, and healing, there is hope, and there is help, and this is the space where that can happen. So it just takes the courage by the power of the Spirit. Some of you need courage to just send the email to prayer at eaglechurch.com and say, I need help. I promise you, we will help. And with God's help, things can be different. What is doesn't have to stay as is. Worship team, why don't you come on up? Here's how we're going to wrap this up this morning. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, he tells this story of a man who has a confrontation with an angel, and the man is living with a lizard on his shoulder. The lizard represents a spirit of lust. And this spirit of lust has kind of taken over this man's life, and it's kind of mismanaged sexuality, it's gotten way out of bounds, and it's kind of calcified in his heart, and he's just tormented, but he's, he's in this space of conflicted. He, he wants the lizard managed, he wants to learn how to control the lizard, <laughs> but he can't envision life without the lizard. Anybody been there? Like... You know you want this out of your life, but you can't envision not having it a part of your life. That's this man in the great divorce that Lewis is saying, this guy's talking to this angel. The angel says to the man with the lizard on the shoulder, would you like some help dealing with the lizard? And the man's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. But nothing too extreme, he says, not too extreme. And the angel says to him, death is the only way. Lizard management will not do. Death. And the guy just, ah. And in this place of desperation, and in this place that he's at the end of himself, and he just wants it to be different, he finally says, okay. Because the angel wouldn't do it without the man's permission. Okay, says to the angel. And at that moment, there's this graphic burning scene where the man and the lizard fall to the ground, apparently dead. But not dead. As the scene unfolds, the man rises, a stronger man than he'd ever been. But the lizard rises too. Only not a lizard, but transformed into a spirited stallion. In other words, the man's sexuality wasn't destroyed, it was redeemed. And then Lewis writes these words. To close that section, nothing, 
Not even the best and noblest can go on as it is now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. Hear this. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Church, This morning, it's time in Jesus' name for some lizards to die. It's time to abandon lizard management. And the ball is squarely now in your court to say, am I going to just try to like self-manage this thing? Or am I going to look my Savior and say, kill it, crucify it. Father, thank you that there's nothing we're opening up to in our hearts right now that you don't know completely and intimately and deeply. You see every detail of it. We just crack open our hearts now. And I pray for the one who this morning, this word lands and just, it brings up some sexual trauma and hurt and pain from the past that in Jesus' name, I pray this would be a day to get help. Pray for healing for that person. Pray a whisper from your spirit that says, I'm here, I love you, I care. And for someone else listening today that you know you've been handling your physical body in a way that is not honoring to God, you've known it's been going on way too long, you've known it, there's an emptiness, there's a raw place inside of your soul because there's just been no integrity in your sexuality. And I pray for healing, I pray for redemption. Minister by your spirit. And then in Jesus' name, I think there's some folks listening who the lizard's been having its way. The lizard of lust, it's calcified, it's gotten entrenched. And right now, in Jesus' name, it's time to die. So you could just, in the quietness of your heart, whether you're at home or you're in this room, you can say, in Jesus' name, slay that dragon of lust. Slay it in Jesus' name. Thank you for this vision, Jesus, of a kind of being in this world where we don't have to live at the mercy of sin and fallenness and the lies of the enemy, that there's a a redemption, there's a hope for renewal, there's a hope for our sexuality that is more beautiful and pure, that we rise as a spirited stallion and not settle for this whimpering, whispering lizard. Meet us where we are. May by your grace we be a community that steps in and embraces your vision for our humanity and our sexuality. We pray it in Jesus' name.